Hello, and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you have sent me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. This week, we are in our 250th episode. Oh my god, 250 Q&A episodes. This has been an awesome ride, and I don't know, in many ways I feel like we're just getting started, but... Anyway, it's been a while since Melissa, my beautiful, wonderful, amazing wife, who we had the most amazing Valentine's Day. Um, she is uh, popping in to say hi to everybody. It's been a little while. And our cat, Seven, who is the most camera shy cat on the planet. Every single time. I have tried to get pictures and videos of this cat so many times. And what you just saw of him is all you're going to see of him because he's mm -hmm. just like that. He somehow senses cameras. I don't know what it is, but that's a thing for him. So anyway, I wanted them to say hi for this special episode. And um, all right, get out of here. We got, we got more work to do now. Off you go, Seven. Oh, my family. Um, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so I made a couple notes here of some things. We got a big show this week, okay? This is going to be an extended length episode for you guys for 250 episode celebration. And I've put out um, some big questions. I want to put some big answers there for you. They're good questions. Um, mostly coming from, not all, but uh, I think over half, a little over half are coming from my Patreon supporters. If you are a supporter of me on Patreon, I will put your questions at the top of the queue as, as, and get to them as quickly as I can. Um, I really, really want to put a big shout out at the very beginning of this thing to my Patreon supporters because the only reason I've got 250 episodes is because of you guys. You know, all of the comments and support and feedback I get, I think I probably have an unusually high amount of approvals on videos and thumbs up and stuff like that. I mean, maybe not. You know, maybe I'm biased, but I think that, you know, I have a lot of very loyal and awesome followers and subscribers out there. You guys are great. I want to validate all of you because um, you all make my life better just by showing up and watching my stuff and, and uh, getting something out of the content I'm trying to put out to you. But Patreon supporters, of course, are at the top of the list because they're the ones who are keeping the lights on, keep the roof over my head, and keep the show going. Really, seriously, it is like that. This is my job, and you guys are the ones who are making it happen for me. And so I'm going to keep pumping out as most awesome content I can, as quickly as I can, for you. Um, and that's my promise to you. So if you would like to support me in this effort, well, it makes my life a lot easier. And I've also got some pretty big speaking engagements this year. I've, got, I've been booked at the um, Faithless Forum in Austin in June. I will be at the uh, ICSA, the International Cultic Studies Association Conference in um, July, over the July 4th weekend in Montreal, if you guys can make it out there. And um, then we're still, we're still uh, I'm just getting rolling on um, trying to maybe see if we can do a UK book tour in August. That's the, that's the plan right now. Uh, or at least the tentative idea is really, it's not even a plan yet. But I want to see if I can work with my good friend John and, and put that together. And then there might be another conference to speak at in October. We'll see. So a lot of, lot of stuff going on. And these are not things, by the way, that anybody's paying me to go do. <laughs> so uh, this is another reason why I really do need your help uh, through Patreon or through, you know, whatever. 
um, so that I can go do these things and, and and speak to larger audiences and try to get critical thinking and and you know and all this anti-authoritarian stuff that I put out here uh, out to them to the more masses. <laughs> I was laughing thinking about me talking to the masses, but anyway, uh, that's my plug at the beginning of the show here. Now let's go ahead and get on with your questions because we've got some amazing ones and I can't wait to answer them. Preacher eleven thirty eight. I wanted to get your thoughts on something in Ben and Michael's Infiltrating Scientology videos. First, I was surprised that Ben's auditor knew about Xenu. I was under the impression that it's not likely that an OT3 or above would be working in a Class 5 org. Am I mistaken about this? If so, in what way? Second, since it appears Ben got busted for having mentioned Xenu, what do you think would have happened if nobody who was in the LA org had gotten to OT3? Would Ben have been found out eventually for knowing about Xenu? If so, based on your own knowledge, what is the most likely way he would have been found out if he hadn't said Xenu to an OT? Third question. Do you know if Scientology staff are given a list of buzzwords and told to report anyone who utters certain words or phrases? Last question. You said on your show that the church must really be going downhill since they chased Ben into a parking lot over $15 since you said when you were on staff you wouldn't chase anybody down for less than $5,000. Was that based off of Hubbard's policy? Were you told only to go after someone if the money amount is $5,000 or more? Or was that just general practice in the church when you were in? Okay, man. Well, you know, you're asking for a four for one. And this time I'm actually going to deliver because of this special episode. <laughs> uh, so let's get to it. All right. First off, you said you were surprised that Ben's auditor was OT3 and knew about Xenu. Don't be. The, uh, audit, there, are, there are Scientologists of all levels on staff at Class 5 orgs. And Class 5 orgs, of course, are what I've been calling from day one the city-level churches. Uh, now, Los Angeles, or you guys might know or not know, is staffed exclusively by Sea Org members now. It wasn't always that way, but it is now. So there's even, you know, I mean, not a higher chance, but it's just kind of interesting that that's uh, the, well, the Los Angeles Church of Scientology is presented within the world of Scientology as the model class five org in the world. It's supposed to be the epitome of what a city level Scientology church is. It's supposed to operate on the, be the you know, most ruthless application of the policy, standard tech, delivering exactly as Hubbard said. That is what LA Org is supposed to be. And people are sent from all over the world to go to LA Org to train there now. Uh, they have training programs that have been going on for years there where they're, where they're working over Scientology executives and staff members and stuff. So it's kind of this training ground and pilot ground for stuff. Um, now, though, it's manned up only by Sea Org members, which immediately makes it not the model Class 5 org of the world because the rest of the orgs aren't manned by Sea Org members. And, and there is a big difference between a Sea Org member and a regular Scientology staff member in terms of levels of dedication, commitment, discipline, um, you know, the make-it-go-right attitude and all of that. So it's, you know, so it's kind of funny that they did that. Now, as far as the OT levels go, they're is always actually supposed to be at least one person who is OT3 or above in every Church of Scientology in the world. And the reason for that is because, uh, this, this, you guys are gonna, might find this interesting. So there is a position in a Scientology org called the Senior Case Supervisor or Senior CS. 
This guy or girl is the top technically trained person in the org. They're supposed to be class eight as an auditor. And if you pull up that grade chart or the bridge to total freedom, that chart that they have, and you see the training on one side and the auditing on the other, and then we talk all about the auditing, but the training side I've talked about in videos, so you can go check that out. Um, and the class eight course is supposed to be the model epitome of a standard tech auditor and case supervisor. In other words, it's the highest level you can go as a public person or as a staff member in Scientology training. You can, that class eight is as high as it goes. There are no public or staff members who train on class nine, 10, 11, and 12, which are the next levels above class eight. So class eight's as high as it goes if you're a staff member and the senior case supervisor is supposed to be a class eight. Hubbard mandated this all the way back from when he first invented class eight in 1968. It's when he first gave the first class on the class eight course uh, back on the ship. So, um, so, so there's always supposed to be somebody in the org who will recognize Xenu, body thetans, or any of the, the stuff about the OT levels because a class eight has to be OT3. Right? They have to be. You cannot do the Class 8 course if you are not OT3. Because half the story about Xenu and his band of renegades and all the rest is um, covered on the Class 8 course, in the lectures on that course. Uh, there's a whole bunch more information about Xenu and stuff. There's a lecture online that you can look up on YouTube called Assists. It's a confidential lecture from the Class 8 course where he talks all about Xenu and body thetans and stuff. And that's not something that, that's not a lecture that people who do the OT3 level listen to. You only listen to it on the Class 8 course. That's the only place in Scientology where you have access to that information. Even if you've done OT3, you can't walk into the Class 8 course room and say, well, I want to read all the stuff. They won't let you. You got to get to class eight to read that stuff. So, um, so that's kind of interesting. And, uh, but it also tells you that there should, since every single org is supposed to have a class eight case supervisor, that should handle the point of, you know, hey, what happens if Xenu comes up, okay? And it's an unusual enough thing. If somebody, if some person, any person walks into a Scientology org, goes into an auditing session like Ben did and talks to their auditor about stuff they've read online, the auditor is probably going to write it all down whether the person, whether that auditor is, is OT or not. So they might not know anything about Xenu, never heard of it, never heard of body thetans, never heard about any of that stuff, never watched South Park. But here's somebody walking in, downloading about it, and they're going to write it down as part of the auditing session, part of the worksheets. And that's going to go to the case supervisor. And if the case supervisor is not OT, he might send it to the senior case supervisor who is OT. You see, and this is how this sort of thing would be found out about. Now, in the case of Ben, Ben's auditor was OT3. Lots of auditors are OTs. Um, people who get up to OT 
I mean, one, they don't really have a whole lot else to do except train in Scientology, so they become auditors. And two, a lot of people in Scientology want to become auditors because they think that that's the best way as a Scientologist to help other people. According to L. Ron Hubbard, it's the only way to help other people. So, um, so there's lots and lots of, you know, of OTs who get auditor training and, and then join staff or join the Sea Org. And in the case of Ben's auditor, that was, that's who she was, right? She's OT, she's a trained auditor. And, um, and a lot of executives are OTs. I mean, Miscavige was on a big push for years, still is, to get the OTs onto staff specifically, right? They didn't used to put as much attention on that kind of thing. But ever since the whole ideal org thing came about, they have been gung-ho about getting OT8s to join staff and be the executive directors or the senior executives of the orgs. So, um, so you generally have at least one, two, three, four OTs in almost any, any organization anywhere in the world. Um, you know, even if they're not holding the senior executive positions or the senior case supervisor positions, they're still Scientologists who are going up the bridge and eventually they get to OT and, you know, and that's how that goes. Okay, so you, you then ask about Ben getting busted for having mentioned Xenu. What would have happened if nobody was in the, you know, had gotten to OT3? Well, that's an impossible situation, especially on a Sea Org base. Um, there's just no way that somebody in the LA Org isn't going to, you know, have a heads up on that, or is that they're going to have a whole org full of no OTs. That's just, I think I've shown now that that just doesn't really happen. Um, but had it happened, and you know, according to your question, you know, what's the most likely way he would have been found out if he hadn't said Xenu? Um, well, Ben and Mike are pretty goofy guys, right? And they were, they were in character and that sort of thing, but they were also being very unusual as Scientologists, right? They were very gung-ho. They wanted to be part of everything. They wanted to do things. They, they were, you know, kind of in there like, like the, that was, was reflected by uh, the recruiter. That, that was a very telling episode when um, that recruiter, the Sea Org recruiter, Mac, was talking to Ben and saying how unusual he was and how gung-ho he was and how, okay, I'll let you in on the, you know, what, how we really think as opposed to what we tell people. I mean, that was a very telling conversation. If anybody in that whole exercise is going to get busted, uh, well, the, the registrar who <laughs> took the money, right, that, that, he's, that the, the, the money that he said was stolen, that person's going to get in a lot of trouble too. Um, but yeah, that, that Mac's going to get in a lot of trouble because he, you know, opened up about how they really think and it made it look like a bunch of idiots, you know, conspiracy theory morons and because that's what Scientologists are when it comes to that. Um, so they were going to get busted at some point no matter what they did just because of their attitude, right? Because they, they were such unicorns in the, in, the, in the org. They were there, they were excited about it, you know, that's, that's, a, that's an unusual thing. Um, so there could have been lots and lots of other ways and of course always wearing those glasses and, and you know, then that one guy got suspicious. Uh, I, was I was a little surprised people didn't get more suspicious earlier, actually. Uh, okay, so there would have been lots of ways he could have been caught. And then third question, um, do Scientology staff get lists of buzzwords? Uh, not that I'm aware of. I was never given anything like that in all the years I was in. And there's no way, there is no way at all, ever, that Scientology staff or public are ever going to be told OT words as a caution or warning. 
that would just be absolutely nuts in Scientology, right? 27 years in, I never once heard the word Xenu uttered by a Scientologist under any circumstances ever. And I did see people who had accidentally let slip certain things in, in not around me, but I saw reports. And if they let any little thing slip, even to another OT in a situation that wasn't completely confidential, they'd get reported on and they'd get busted, right? I, I, I cannot stress how seriously Scientology takes their own dogma on the confidential materials. People, I, I, I think people don't really believe me on this or something, but it's, they, they could not take it more seriously. And they lock those materials down with a security system that would, it's an impressive level of security. There's no one ever who's gonna just walk into an org now and walk out with those materials. It's impossible. The doors of the buildings literally lock if any of those confidential packs make it out of the course room, much less down the hall into the elevator. They're, they're, I mean, they're, they're barcoded and scanned and all this other stuff. So, um, so they take that stuff really seriously, right? So they are not about to issue a set of OT words or symbols or anything like that to give people a heads up that somebody's coming in, you know, talking OT stuff, right? I think enough Scientologists on the front lines have now heard enough stuff from people walking by that they have some kind of shore story or cover story worked out within the world of Scientology for these words and for these concepts. Basically, when I was in, the, the cover story was all of that is a lie, none of that is on the OT levels, anything you're seeing on the internet is total horseshit, it's twisted, it's messed up, it's taken out of context, you're not getting the straight stuff, and you shouldn't even be looking at that stuff. In fact, if you do look at that stuff, you're not gonna get on the OT levels anyway, so you better not get off, right? I mean, that's the attitude in Scientology about that stuff. They don't, they're not walking around on eggshells about it. They are very firmly in a position where they say, look, we're the ones who hold the keys to the kingdom, and if you want in, you're gonna cooperate with every single thing we tell you, and if you don't like that, there's the door. That's their attitude about that, right? They do not care what you have to say or think about L. Ron Hubbard's OT materials, right? They are the written, enlightened truth as, you know, according to L. Ron Hubbard, and there isn't any other, uh, you know, option or choice about it. Okay, and then finally you said, um, oh, the $5,000 thing. That was a joke. <laughs> okay, so, so Ben says that he got chased out into the, into the parking lot for 15 bucks. I thought that was pretty cheesy. I mean, I literally never did see anybody chase somebody into a parking lot for a $15 course pack or book. I, I never did. Ben and Mike were right because they said in the video, well, we think she was doing that not for the 15 bucks, but because she wanted us on board so much. And she was really, you know, she, she thought that us doing Scientology would save our lives and she wanted that for us. And that's true. That's totally true. I was being facetious when I said I would never chase anybody out to a parking lot for less than 5,000. That was, I was just making a joke. Um, I chase people out to the parking lot for all kinds of months, amounts of money and, and recruitment purposes and, and all kinds of things, right? Um, and, it, and really the accurate thing there, the accurate statement there is that the, the, the we'll chase people wherever we need to as Scientologists or Sea Org members because we are so dedicated to getting that person the truth. 
Okay, so uh, so I was just trying to make light of that, and I and I, I guess a couple people misunderstood what I meant there. So, okay, you got four for one. <laughs> I hope you're happy, and uh, I hope we've kicked this off to a good start. Let's get to the next question. Kevin Zay, what is your opinion on anti-theism? I am an agnostic atheist, and I tend to fall into the not caring about your beliefs, but caring about what you do based on those beliefs camp. I have heard from various sources that Gene Roddenberry was an anti-theist, but if that was the case, it sure didn't seem to bleed over into his ideas for Star Trek. Okay, big question. Let's go for a big answer on this one. So, first off, anti-theism as I understand it is the idea that not only is there a doubt or a, a, a lack of belief in God, but that there is that uh, the belief in God is actually nuts or somewhat insane, or there's, there's like, you'd have to be, there'd have to be something wrong with you to actually believe in God. And of course, I consulted Wikipedia on this, which gives me two nice quotes, one from the Oxford English Dictionary, an anti-theist is one opposed to belief in the existence of a God, and then there is the Hitchman, Christopher Hitchens, uh, quote here, I'm not even an atheist so much as I am an anti-theist. I not only maintain that all religions are versions of the same untruth, but I hold that the influence of churches and the effect of religious belief is positively harmful." Okay, so uh, it's not just a matter that the person who holds religious beliefs has something wrong with them, but actually that the entire concept of having a belief in a god or gods is harmful more so than it is beneficial. I don't believe that. I don't fall under that way of thinking at all um, because I've now gone through enough and seen enough over the last few years after coming out of Scientology and, and associating with people involved in human trafficking, sex trafficking, I mean really nasty, awful, horrible stuff, right? Child slave labor and stuff. That I and also uh, having gone down some rabbit holes on AA and Narconon and and drug rehab and stuff, uh, and criminality, right? People who are hardened criminals and somehow have an epiphany or see the light, have a religious experience of some kind and attribute that to Jesus Christ or to God, and turn their lives around, right? All in all of these uh, fields or areas. Of, of, uh, of activity and abuse, we see people who are abusers, who are victimizing others, right, who are truly criminals, who have a religious experience, have a religious epiphany, turn their lives around. And these are people who you know when you are listening and talking with them and interacting with them, not just, you know, uh, at a surface level, but really get into it, that these are people who do not have the force of will or self-confidence or self-awareness or whatever you want to call it. I mean, I really, I'm probably stumbling around with these words here even right now, that they needed that belief to turn themselves around. It's not a, it's not a matter of it's an option for them. It's if they don't have a belief in a higher power, they're not going to be good people. They're not going to be compelled to be good people. They're not going to feel any urgency or need to be a good person. It is the thing that drives their morality. And, you know, if that's where that person's at, who am I to tell them that, that's, that they're basing their entire, you know, system of morality on a lie when they're being good people with it, where they weren't being good people without it? 
I, that's a, that is a tough question and it is easy and I'm sure a lot of you out there right now who are atheists might be writing me off right now as like, well, they don't need that belief in God in order to be good people. No, that's what I'm trying to tell you. They do. Right? I've, I've had those reasons. I've had those conversations. I've had those ideas that you don't have to have this in order to have this. Well, that's great for you. <laughs> for you, that's true. Not for them. And, and we project our own needs and wants and desires and fears and terrors and everything else on other people all the time. How could we not? The only way we understand other people is through our own experiences. Well, that's, I mean, empathy is, uh, is us laying our, you know, ourselves and them, you know, as like a template or something. I mean, there's this like process where you can sort of get the idea of what somebody else is experiencing. But in order to do that, you have to contextualize it with your own experiences. There really isn't any other way for you to realistically do it, is there? Other than imagination, I suppose. You could use, you know, you can bring imagination into it too, but imagination is always limited by the context of your life and experiences. So my point is that it's easy for us, it's natural for us, it's completely expected of any of us that we would project our own ideas onto other people and insist that those people follow our ideas of how things work because it works for us. It works for these guys over here who agree with me, so what's the problem? Well, the problem is that, that just because you guys agree on it or just because you think it's true doesn't mean it's going to be true for them. So I want to kind of, you know, sort of clear away any controversy over this, this topic because I, I've, I've come to these conclusions through, through some, some real, you know, school hard knocks experiences. And this is, this is where tolerance, this is where the rubber meets the road on tolerance. Are you going to be tolerant? Are you going to be compassionate toward another human being just because they're another human being? Or are you going to insist that they have to think the way you do in order for you to show them tolerance, compassion, and understanding? That is, that's where things get tough. And this is one of those cases in the atheist world where I've seen a lot of very, very uh, you know, strident, strong arguments and belief on, on both ends of this. And, the, and, and this is not the kind of thing I see too many people debating or talking about when they engage in these dogma debates with believers, right? They want to talk at the level of, you know, the illogic of the belief rather than get down to why do you actually believe this? What is it doing for you? How does it serve your life that you have this belief? And then kind of taking some of the judgment away from that and just going, okay, you know what? I'm okay with that. And as you said, Kevin, you know, I really don't care. Like you said, you know, you're in the camp of I don't care what you believe, I care about what you do. And at the end of the day, that's all any of us can care about because who are we to, to try to police what's going on in other people's heads? You know, when it comes to non-destructive beliefs or when it comes to beliefs that are that, that don't result in action where the person is actively going around hurting people, harming people, trying to bring about, you know, the end of, of days or whatever. I mean, you know, you get your religious extremists, of course. That's what, <laughs> duh. I mean, I think, I think I've acknowledged that there are, you know, some pretty crazy religious extremists out there and that they should have a whole lot of pushback against them. But, of course, what we're pushing back against is not their belief in God or Jesus or Noah or, or uh, Odin, 
right, or Loki or something, what we're pushing back against is the fact that they're trying to use that belief to impinge on or take away other people's right to believe, think, say what they want. Uh, and this is this is the you know this is the social controversy of the back and forth of the you know the fight of the of the extremists. So um, so anyway, as far as the whole anti-theism thing goes, I tend to view it rather negatively because I think that it's the atheist end of the spectrum, the extreme end of the spectrum, to the religious extremists over here and the and the true believers and the the culty guys. I think you can get that way over here with anti-theism too. Uh, not all of them, of course, but you know, just because you're pushing back against a belief in God or think it's you know that's destructive, it, there are cases to be made, and there are certainly points to be made that religion is destructive and it has caused harm more than it has helped. Um, there's all kinds of anecdotes on this, and there's very little in the way of real serious sociological and um, maybe psychological studies on this, right? And, uh, and a lot more study needs to be done on this in terms of like finding the, the statistical facts rather than the anecdotes. We've all got anecdotes. We've all got stories. I can tell you 10 stories for every 10 stories you want to tell me about either end of the spectrum, either end of, uh, of, of political spectrums even, right? But Again, point is, we all have different experiences. We all have various reasons we believe things. I don't want to try to lump all anti-theists into one camp and say they're all ex extremists, they're all militant, they're all, they're all a bunch of nutcases, because that's not any more true than it is that just because somebody has religious belief, they're nutcases and extremists and crazy people. So, I, I, again, spectrums and shades of gray and everything. But I thought I would comment on this a bit and give you some of my thoughts about it because I, I do like to push back on extremism in any form. And I think anti-theism can go there pretty quickly. Doesn't have to, doesn't have to at all. Um, but I think it does. And I think that that does not necessarily help the cause of trying to get along. And at the end of the day, I think that's a lot more important to me than being right about a, an unfalsifiable claim. Because at the end of the day, anyone who's telling you that God does or doesn't exist, or that there are gods, or that there are not gods, cannot prove anything they're saying one way or the other. At all. And it is, Russell's teapot does apply, you know, if you're going to assert that something is true, then you have to back it up with some evidence. I think Russell's teapot's off a little bit in that I think it applies as much to the people who are saying there absolutely positively is no God, no way, no form, no, it's destructive, it's horrible, there, there cannot be this. You don't know that. You don't, right? And, uh, and that's just kind of how that is. Because all of this came from somewhere. And a whole lot of people, like it or not, right or wrong, good or bad, a whole lot of people out there are not satisfied and never will be satisfied with it's just always been this way or something came from nothing. That is not a, these are not concepts that human beings are comfortable with. Empirically so, not my opinion. 
right? So if we are, if you are in a frame of mind that that religion is destructive, that that theism is 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 inherently bad for you, I'd suggest coming up with better ways of expressing that <laughs> that that also express some compassion, tolerance, and understanding if you want to change hearts and minds. Because the way this is going right now, I, I don't know that it's going the, the, the best way it could. And that's some take on that. I hope that was interesting to you guys. <laughs> Blake Nestle. Perhaps you have heard the audio recordings of Amber Heard and Johnny Depp recently leaked to the press. On the surface, this story seems like run-of-the-mill celebrity gossip, but it launches into a much more universal topic, domestic violence. Let me preface this by stating my firm belief that aggressing upon another is morally wrong regardless of the gender of either party. A multitude of sociologists, psychologists, and other human behavioral experts have spoken about the societal presumption of innocence most women are given. It's even statistically reflected here in the USA with the lesser prison time handed to women as opposed to men for commission of the same crime. In the recording, we can hear Heard exhibiting classic abuser techniques mockery, gaslighting, while casually admitting to striking him. Now, it is highly likely that each of them was abusing the other. But if it was wrong when he did it, shouldn't it be equally as wrong when she did it? I think MRAs, men's rights activists, are about as ridiculous as radical feminists. But this does point to a disconnect in logic in much of modern feminism. They desire women to be societally equal to men, as do I. It's a progressive and moral position. Yet when confronted with the reality that women have an equivalent agency for being shitty, the woke apologetics are deployed en masse. This also speaks to a wider problem within the Me Too movement in that it's looking more and more like 21st century McCarthyism. There were slash are genuine bastards out there who need or needed to be held to account like Weinstein and Cosby just like there were genuine communists in America seeking its overthrow and or destruction in the late 40s and early 50s. Yet now that they've been exposed, we're seeing them under every rock and bush. Small transgressions between men and women are being deemed abuse. And now people are conscious of the fact that to even lob the accusation is enough to bring about serious consequences and or make one a social pariah. We're seeing many people, mostly men, successfully suing their former universities for the treatment they received at the hands of these Title IX kangaroo courts. I suppose my question is, how is this phenomena in the service of victims? How is sidestepping due process and equal protection of benefit to justice? I have a mother, a sister, and innumerable other women in my life that I want to see thrive, and I don't see how this helps any of them. Okay, Blake, thanks for this question and for taking the time to word it in such a way that it really, that I'm getting where you're coming from. And you're obviously not just some, you know, MRA on a rant here, okay? And I get that. Um, you are trying to provide a, a, a fair look at this, and yet there are issues with this, and you're, and you're questioning about it. And you're right, too, because this is a complicated, nuanced issue that has all kinds of vectors coming at it from all different directions, and it's, and it's a pretty messy situation and has been for, well, for centuries. Um, you know, the, the, the struggles between men and women have been struggles. There have been problems with this, and it has been centuries, even millennia, of, um, you know, of abusive behavior towards women. 
um, women being treated as chattel, women being treated as property, women, um, you know, not even treated as human beings um, or recognized as human beings. I mean, this has been a thing, and it's been a systemic thing, and it's been a problem for many, 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 many years. So then there, become, then there comes the inevitable backlash or pushback against that. Um, you know, one of the problems here in the United States, one of the problems in almost any country anywhere, I don't know any country that's figured this out perfectly, is justice systems. You know, systems of justice are hard. How do you provide fair and equal treatment to everybody under all circumstances, right? How do you, how do you operate on a presumption of innocence, um, you know, presumed innocent rather than guilty? Uh, that's, a, that's, a, that's a great thing. We want that. Right? We don't want presumed guilty until proven innocent. That would suck. That means the second there's an accusation or the cops arrest you, you're in prison and you're there for the rest of your life until you can prove you're innocent. Whoa, right? Well, we don't want any of that. that just, that's just begging for abuse. So we have it the other way around. And so um, we then have the problem of guilty people being able to walk free because nobody can prove that they did what they did. Uh, this is um, compounded by the fact that human nature enters in and bias enters in on the part of investigators, on the part of lawyers, on the part of judges, and on the part of jurists, where you get a rape victim, let's say, who finally has the courage to, to run the gauntlet of bias and prejudice that she's going to experience, or he, as a male, it's actually going to be even worse for them, uh, in, in some ways, and, um, and they run this gauntlet only to be, you know, to experience more abusive behavior and be treated even more traumatically and to have more trauma as a result of their experience. You get a defense lawyer who can, you know, sit in the courtroom and say, well, what were you wearing? And, you know, obviously that question doesn't have to have this sort of slimy connotation that you were asking for it, but it often does, especially when it's asked by a defense lawyer in a court of law, right? And the jury, if they are biased in the direction of women or sluts and this kind of thing. So much for, you know, putting a rapist behind bars because this woman will be blamed instead because she opted to dress however she opted to dress. And that's pretty uncool. So that's a problem. And this has been a problem for a very, very, very long time. Um, so yes, you have the situation where women are given lighter sentences for the same crime as men, yet you also have the situation where women are facing tougher circumstances to prove what's happened to them when they've been sexually assaulted or abused. And let's not even bring into this the number of cases of incest out there. You know, interviewing Christ uh, uh, Christina Richardson this last uh, that I posted this last week on my channel was, was pretty eye-opening, you know, that, um, that there are probably more cases of unreported incest and sexual abuse of minors in these, in, in these households all over the United States than many people are willing to acknowledge. Um, I didn't just base that statement, by the way, on my interview with Christina, but also on other research I've been doing on this issue. And it's the unreported, you know, the situation of just unreported cases is, it's bad, you know. Um, 
So then you have getting back to your question here of like, okay, I'm trying to, I'm trying to, you know, just kind of like lay out some situations here. The justice system, the difficulties with the justice system, any justice system are themselves a problem. The problems with human bias and prejudice are a problem. And then you have this other problem, which is expressed in your question, which is, okay, so now we recognize that these systems aren't really doing the job that we want them to be doing 100% of the time. Yes, they work. Yes, they work often, but they don't work all the time. And we get plenty of anecdotes, one after another after another, of cases where people were not dealt with fairly and where um, sexual abusers, even serial abusers, walk away, you know, walk around in broad daylight, no problem, and get to continue abusing people. So we go, my God, that shouldn't be, we must do something about this. And so people try to do something about it, and they set up what are called special victim units, right? There's even a whole TV show about this, right? So Law and Order SVU, right? But, but this is actually a thing, and special victims units are necessary, and every police force should have one because they can bring in, you know, people who are claiming to have been uh, victims of sex crimes or human trafficking, you know, the really nasty stuff, and they can get an investigator who will listen to them without re-traumatizing them in the process. You know, cops are generally decent people. I really, truly believe that. But interrogations can be really high-pressure, difficult situations. And when you're dealing with somebody who's traumatized, who's just been sexually assaulted, for example, or has grown up with a repeated pattern of abuse against them, you're dealing with somebody who is not you know, that you should not be talking to in a very harsh, stern way, right? Because you're going to be re-traumatizing them. Yet at the same time, the police are burdened with the fact that they cannot assume that this person is just telling them the truth. Because if there's anybody in the world you should understand or are lied to more often than they're told the truth, it's cops. I mean, they, they, they learn this behavior themselves. They learn that, you know, they can't trust everything that everybody tells them. Because people have all kinds of vested interests to lie to cops. So you create a special unit, you, you create special circumstances, you try to do these Title IX courts, you try to do SVU, you try to set up situations where these people won't be further traumatized and yet we can get the true facts of the situation and then you throw that into a system which, you know, if you look at state, city level police, you're looking at underfunded departments, undermanned departments, I mean the number of problems are, are legion. The number of, uh, you know, just things that are stacked against people get going into the system and, and receiving justice. I mean, there's a lot. So it's difficult. So we try to set up the special stuff and then people outside the system look at that and go, well, how come they're getting special accommodations? Why is this? And the mere fact that special accommodations are occurring... Uh, we'll give that more attention, we'll give that more press, the media will pay more attention to it, there will be more anecdotes about it, good and bad, more opinions flying around about it, good and bad. And, and so we come to your question where you go, well, it looks like these special circumstances are creating situations where these women are able to lie, are able to abuse and game the system, and that men now are walking around on eggshells and all of this. Well, yeah, that's true. All of that's true. All of those are consequences, intended and unintended, of setting up the system. But you got to understand that the system, these special things were set up because the regular system wasn't doing the job. 
and isn't doing the job, not to the degree that we need it to, and not to the degree to meet the actual volume of problem, which is going to harken me back to, you know, how many sexual assaults actually are occurring every year. We have no idea. We don't. You can go up and down the statistics. You can go to the MRAs and get their statistics. You can go to the women's rights folks and get their statistics, and they are not the same story at all. Well, how does that make sense? One or both must not be true. Well, I tend to fall into the realm that I don't think either of them are true because there are no absolutely rock-solid, nailed-down statistics on how many sexual assaults, rapes, and cases of incest are there in the United States every year. The reporting systems don't even exist, much less any statistical meta-analysis done of how many unreported cases are there. Yeah, there have been analyses done, but they're always biased. This is the thing that's been throwing me off in trying to, every time I dive down that rabbit hole, I end up coming out more confused than I am clear on, on what the actual situation is. We, we can't seem to get a clear picture of this. And, the, and until we get that, we really don't know the extent of the problem. We just have all these anecdotes and the human emotion and reaction that comes from those anecdotes, right? Because people's passions run high on this stuff. And when you're a victim of sexual assault, it makes sense that your emotions are going to run high. It is an awful experience. So, um, so we all, you know, feel about for the, for that stuff, and and this, the push and pull of this is the is the the sort of contortions that we're going through now as we're trying to figure out how to deal with this problem in a rational way, and then finally, you do get women who uh, false report, right? Who falsely accuse? That happens. It, it does. Does it happen a lot? No. Not really. I mean, not from what we can, you know, kind of fetter out from the statistics and anecdotes that we have and the information that we have. It doesn't appear that this is, you know, some big, huge problem that the MRAs, of course, go on about. But it's also not nothing. It's not no problem. This does happen. And when it happens, you know, then people's lives can be ruined. And that's, we don't want any of that either. So, you know, what to do? <laughs> You know, between all the emotions and the biases and, the, and the, the, the various levels of system, because when we talk about the law enforcement system, we're talking about a multi-level system. You know, at the state, at the city level, you have a system. At the state level, you have a system. At the, at the national level, you have a system. I guess at the county level, you have a system. And all of these are different systems and winding things through all of this and understanding all of that and, and seeing how it's so radically different from how it's represented to us in entertainment. You know, you might as well just take every single thing you've ever seen in terms of movies and TV shows about lawyering and cases and how it all works and just throw it out the window because almost none of it is, use, is worth anything in terms of trying to learn how it really works how lawyers really are, how cases are really tried, how the laws are really written, and how they're really enforced, and what jurists do and don't do, and what they see and don't see. I mean, it's crazy. It's crazy, you know? And then you bring in the level of expert witnesses, what makes an expert witness, how you can have opposing expert witnesses saying the exact opposite things in the same field of study, same disciplines. How's that supposed to work? You know, I mean, there's just so many levels to this that, that where things go off the rails, and yet we somehow, 
at the end of the day, have a system that somehow works and somehow processes cases and moves things along and prosecutes enough people who do bad things that we put enough of them away that we are able to keep going and carry on with a society. We just want to make it better. We want to make it faster. We want to make it easier. And we want there to be less of these guys and girls getting away with this stuff, right? Um, that's at the end of the day. I think we all agree that we don't want you know, unprosecuted cases. We don't want cases where people are going to walk away scot-free when they are guilty. And we don't want innocent people to go to jail. And those wants are big asks in a society of 300 million people. I, I don't know what are we at now, 316 million or 360 million or something. I mean, I, I, an unthinkable number of people just in the United States alone, much less if you extend this out to the rest of the world. You know, these are huge problems to solving. These are huge asks out of human beings. We are, we are so ridiculous and so fallible and so emotional in how we deal with things that no wonder there's going to be pendulum swings both ways on the abusive behaviors of these systems, right? The innocent are going to go to jail, the guilty are going to go free, and we're going to have everything in between. And that's the fallibility of human systems. You know, so it's not a satisfying answer. I couldn't take this to a satisfying place because it's not a satisfying situation. And it's still being sorted out. And it's still going to be half, and it's going to take decades more to sort out fully. It just is because that's how our systems work. They don't work fast. They work slow. And in the bigger picture, we see that generally we want that to be that way. We want things to be slow and moving along at their own pace because that's what keeps things structurally sound and keeps them, you know, gradually growing and gradually improving. But it can be so frustrating when you're stuck in it in the meantime and you're at, and you're at the receiving end of some form of injustice, whether it's a false accusation or whether it's, you know, you've been legitimately victimized and you can't get help. And um, I think that uh, I think that's where we're at right now, and we've got a lot of sorting out to do, and um, and we're going to have to just kind of show some more tolerance and patience with each other, and realize that people who have been victimized are, you know, are not. That's not something you're going to get over, or be able to talk completely rationally about. <laughs> For quite some time, you know, you got a lot of stuff you're gonna have to process when you're in the middle of that, and we have to we have to account for that, you know. Uh, so, you know, so that's what makes this thing so difficult. Uh, those are some thoughts on it. You know, maybe they're illuminating or enlightening uh, in some fashion, but I really feel like I've only touched the tip of the iceberg of the difficulties with all of this. So it's not a matter for me of coming down. Um, Blake, on your side or on the side of the women, because I don't look at this as sides. We're all struggling to try to figure out what to do to give the victims of, of injustice the justice they deserve without hurting people who don't deserve it. And um, this has been the struggle of our system from day one, and I don't think that, you know, it, that struggle is going to be over anytime soon. So we kind of just kind of roll with it and try to push the ball down the road and make this a better place to live and hope we're doing okay. There you go. Rich, 
After watching many of your video discussions on cults slash organized religions and what they do to be classified as such, it hit me, this being election season, the Republican and Democrat parties just might be cults too. Separating you from your cash by saying whatever it takes to maximize donations and preying on your fears of the other party winning. Your thoughts? And if they are cults, they are sworn enemy cults of each other, how weird would that be? Okay, well, I will agree that the Democrats and the Republicans are cults. And I will hearken back to um, how cult uh, comes from culture. And this is, a, this is a conversation John Atack and I had fairly recently about this. Um, you know, we, you, I'm not saying, by the way, let me clarify right away, I'm not saying the Democrats and the Republicans are destructive cults. Big difference. Um, in the terminology that I use on this channel, a destructive cult's a very specific thing. It follows a very specific checklist of, of ideas and, 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 and guidelines and things they do. And the Democrats and the Republicans are not that. They're not like Scientology. They're not like the Mormons or, you know, or these other, or Nexium even, you know, or, or martial arts cults or something. Um, sure, you get cults of personality in, in, in these parties around candidates. And you get cultish behavior. You get mind control behavior, you get thought stopping behavior, you get thought reform behavior. You do get all of those things. And as I've said many times, there is a spectrum of this, right? Intent matters, context matters always when it comes to de deciding whether a group is a destructive cult or not. And I cannot look at the Democrats and the Republicans and say, destructive cult, destructive cult. It's not, doesn't quite work that way. Even the whole cult of Trump thing is not all about every single Trump supporter. And the people who get their panties in a wad about that, I, you know, at this point, I just kind of lose my patience because I've said it so many times. You know, it's, if you're a Trump supporter, that doesn't mean you're a cultist. There is a cult. There is a destructive cult in that group of Trump supporters, and that's for sure. But that's a separate thing from the Democrats and the Republicans. The Democrats and Republicans are big, wide, nationwide parties that are represented by so many different beliefs and so many different ideas. And the dogma is variable and liquid depending on who you're talking to. How, you know, how is that a cult, right? I mean, you depends on who you talk to is what the interpretation of the whole thing is. And there are some wide differences of opinion within these parties, and you are perfectly free to express your opinion in these parties, and you are perfectly free to go form your own party or to leave the party you're part of, and they're not going to stalk and harass you. They're not going to follow you around and tell you how awful you are that you used to be a Democrat, now you're a Republican. My God, what the hell is wrong with you? Sure, you'll get some social media grief, but if you guys think social media grief is abuse, <laughs> you know, that's not how this works. That's not stalking and harassing. If, Scientolo if, the, if the sum total of the threat from Scientology was some tweets or some nasty Facebook comments in my direction, then we wouldn't be having this discussion. I wouldn't even have a channel, you know? So, you know, so we have to be a little bit uh, clear here about when, when we talk about abusive, destructive cults, the level that we're talking about. Democrats and Republicans aren't that. They're, most of their arguments are in the theater of ideas, you know, and they're not even coming to fisticuffs that often. So, you know, it's like, no, they're not, they're not destructive cults. I think I made that clear now. But they are cultures. And that's the key to understanding these groups. Because they have their own rules, their own guidelines, their own attitudes, their own ways of dress, their own ways of speaking, their own language peculiarities. 
all of these things exist within these groups. It, it, the truth is, all of these things exist within all groups. We might as well call them cultures rather than groups. I mean, it's really, it's, it's like that. So, so you do find us versus them. You do find some black and whitish thinking, right? Uh, and, and in the cases of, of course, the extreme believers, you get the truly black and white thinking. That can be developed, but that doesn't necessarily, that in and of itself doesn't make a group a destructive cult. You know, extreme beliefs are extreme beliefs, but are they followed up with action and what kind of action? And is the party itself the one who's promoting that action? And what does that mean, the party itself, right? At what level? Again, these are multi-level nuanced groups. You know, you got city, county, state, national level. So you could have something happening in a, at a local level that is horrendous, that's awful, that's definitely cultish. But that doesn't mean the whole thing is that, right? It just means that little group is. So that's how we have to approach this when we're making decisions about whether groups are or are not destructive cults. And that's kind of how I pretty much look at uh, political parties um, and uh, big wide groups, you know, where you have these, these divergent ideas and opinions about things. You know, you have the freedom of thought and freedom of expression in these groups to have those things. And that alone makes them not destructive cults. You know, um, it's just, they're just groups of people. And there you go. Maureen Redfern. So I've noticed in my Facebook feed lately, there have been several of these ads where they promise the ability to leave your body and float around. Isn't that something Scientology promises you'll be able to do if you reach the top of the bridge? Also, isn't it true that nobody actually has ever been able to do it? It's something my mom was told in the 60s, that she could do it if she was able to get into the right state of mind by meditating. Oh, she tried so hard. As a six-year-old, I never understood why she wanted to leave me behind and go floating around, especially without her body, including her clothes. In my six-year-old mind, she'd obviously be naked on the ceiling. Obviously. I'd sit and watch her. Om. Om for hours, waiting to see her nakedness fly around like Casper the Friendly Ghost. Nothing. I think I was more disappointed than she was, honestly. I don't believe anybody was asking for money when she tried it. The stuff I'm seeing on my social media pages is trying to sell something, a book, or a master class. I think it's an absolute ripoff. Maybe I'm just not enlightened enough. Just seems like a scam to me. What's your take? <laughs> Thanks, Maureen. Yeah, this business of getting out of your body and having a spiritual existence and flitting around the universe and all that, this is an old, 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 old as the hills idea. You know, I mean, this, is, this probably goes all the way back. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's a symbolic need or desire to, you know, escape, to get away from our troubles, to feel the pressures of our thoughts and, and the burden of our worries and concerns and the pressures of social, you know, environment and work and family and these things. And you just want to get away, you know, and, and exteriorizing, as they call it in Scientology, this is definitely a thing that exists there. Um, the, the idea of separating your spiritual self from your physical self, and whether this is an astral body or whether this is just purely as a spiritual entity that doesn't have any physical manifestation, I mean, 
you know, all of these ideas come from this, this, this basic desire of, of getting out, getting away, trying to realize your true potential. This is how Scientology words it, right? Uh, Hubbard used to make claims that you could pop somebody out of their head, out of their body, and then the, then the Thetan could, from an external position, look at the body and cure it of its ailments, right? I mean, you know, as if this nonsense has any degree of reality to it at all. As far as we can tell, as far as, as the best case scenario from science that I've read or, or done my research on, um, there isn't any such thing. There is zero proof that there is a spiritual existence of some kind. There are lots and lots and lots of anecdotes about leaving bodies, being, you know, in the state of mind where you see yourself or can flit around the room or something like that, or as they do in Scientology, go take a trip to Mars and go dive into the sun. And they call that the grand tour, I think, uh, you know, this, this kind of stuff. Um, you know, these, they're flights of fancy. There, there isn't anything anywhere that can show us that this is reality. And every single time, so far that I've been approached by people who have wanted to convince me about the truth of remote viewing, ESP, telepathy, telekinesis, etc. And I've been approached by a few people over the years about this, former Scientologists and not other people out there. Um, the, 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 the burden of proof has been very shallow. Um, the, the, you know, the, the standard to which they hold their evidence is anecdotes and testimonials and connecting dots that don't really connect, you know, to somebody who's looking at it from outside who doesn't have a vested interest in this having to be true. You know, when somebody really wants something to be true, it's easy to make it true. It's easy to believe it. It's easy to prove it. <laughs> but it's, it, this is why in science you must have peer review. You must have other people who have nothing to do with it looking in on what you've seen and observed and experienced and seeing if they can duplicate or replicate that through the same process you did. And if they can't, you have a problem. It's not them who have a problem. It's you who has the problem because you can either prove it or you can't. And if you can't, there is no compelling reason for anybody to believe a word you have to say about it. You know, there are other explanations for things, and in, in, in the case specifically of people popping out of their heads, it's called disassociation. You know, you, this is who you are, <laughs> and this is what you see the world with, this is what you process the information with, and this is also the thing that regulates the systems of your body, which is its primary purpose, by the way. So, this is how we experience the world as we understand it right now at our current state of understanding of, of science and ourselves. There's tons more to learn though. So the possibility is always there that there are things we have not yet hit on, we don't yet know about, or we can't yet sense, measure, or experience through the tools or our senses that we have. That all being said, I will always leave the door open to the possibility of that, but then there's the other side of this coin, which is the goop side. 
the, the scammer side, the people who want to convince you that you have abilities and perceptions and skills and awarenesses and spiritual existences that they want to enlighten you all about if you'll just pay them two, three, four hundred or thousand or a million dollars, depending on how gutsy they are and how many people they've conned already, right? That's, the, that's how that works. And there are so many of those scammers out there. They have no moral compass. They only want to live the best life they can get. And if that means, you know, conning a bunch of people and telling them what they want to hear and selling them something that supposedly gives them this wonderful experience but actually makes them worse because it drives them into disassociated states, where they're actually in a delusional frame of mind and that delusion is reinforced with social and cult methods, you know, then you get a whole bunch of people who are absolutely convinced that, you know, the end of the world is about to come and they can pop out of their bodies and fly off or the aliens are going to come and take them away and, you know, they'll, you can get people into a frame of mind that they'll commit suicide over those kind of beliefs and that's, that's heaven's gate. Google it. You know, that, that, that's where people can go with this stuff. It's dangerous. So that's why I push back on it the way that I do, you know. Uh, yeah, I want people to believe whatever they want to believe. But, I'm, but if you ask me about it, you know, I'm going to give you my opinions and criticisms of that. And the fact that experientially I've seen people end up much worse as a result of having these kind of beliefs and ideas than they were before they had them. Because disassociation is a thing. You know, and it's not a good thing. Uh, you know, meeting reality on the terms of reality is, is, is really the best way to approach life. And this is why I have written across the, you know, the, the top of my Facebook page, you know, I'd rather live with an uncomfortable truth than a pleasing lie, you know, or a comforting lie, or a lie that makes me feel good, you know. And as far as I can tell, a spiritual existence is just not the way things are, you know. Um, I'll just I'll just sort of drop this and, and move on real fast. But you know, something I want to do a podcast about at some point, something I really want to want to look into is simulation theory. Because if you want to open open some doors to some some wild thinking and some wild possibilities, what if this is all a simulation? Now, there's an idea that is seriously being contemplated by some truly great minds. And uh, that's something I'm more than a little interested in. But I don't view it as anything more serious than a bit of a fanciful idea right now. But maybe we'll talk about that in a future episode. Eric Wardle. I and none of my estranged family are involved in Scientology. But I go to the opposite side of the road of the Scientology shop in Manchester because I find the subject both fascinating and also respect that many people come out of Scientology virtually destroyed. One thing I can't help wondering is the role that personality disorders play, and also, for example, empaths who are in effect people-pleasers, i.e. without boundaries and literally sacrifice themselves to be accepted. One can't help but wonder whether some of the bigger Scientology fish are potential sociopaths or suffering from narcissistic personality disorder, for example. It may take a psychologist or specialist in cults to answer these questions, but I was an empath without boundaries and surrounded my narcissistic family, friends, and partners until recently. They talk of the family of narcissistic members being like a cult. 
Okay, Eric, uh, interesting uh, subject to talk about here, and I'm glad that you have come to a place now where you're no longer part of a narcissistic situation. Uh, good for you. And interesting question, because yes, John Atak and I actually talked recently about the idea of there's a theory in history of, you know, history being driven by sociopaths who use apaths to um, sway or control or, you know, somehow uh, influence empaths to do what they want them to do. Because empaths, as you mentioned, are people pleasers, are your regular good people, and there's quite a few of them in the world. Many, many, many more than there are sociopaths or apaths. But, you know, it only takes, I, I mean, I just read today, there was a case of a serial molester. I mean, this guy, one doctor apparently has 70 accusers. Uh, a gynecologist, right, who was abusing his patients. Um, and so this is recently coming to light and highlights, in fact, some of the difficulties in prosecution and also in, you know, the, I mentioned earlier about the unreported thing. This, is a, this was sort of a thing that, that spurred me to be thinking about that. Anyway, as far as um, your thing goes, um, so history could be this cycle of empaths being riled up by sociopaths and apaths who are enabling them and creating war, creating, you know, horrible situations. And then, of course, the sociopaths eventually get, you know, taken out because people realize what they are and what they're actually doing. And, um, and then we move on with history and we go from one to the next to the next. And the 20th century specifically was it, we were inundated with sociopaths and world wars. I mean, larger scale conflicts than we've ever had in the history of the world. And more damage and destruction occurred in the 20th century than I think every other century before combined. So pretty bad, right? It gets things get pretty nasty under sociopaths. And yet this continues to be the cycle with which we live our lives and go along because so you know, because empaths want to believe people. I mean, I, I would classify myself in that role as well. And, you know, and it's, and it's, um, it's an optimistic, you know, people are good. I'm a people pleaser, everybody, you know, again, we project onto other people how we ourselves see the world and we think other people are that way too. And sometimes they are not. And sometimes they are not in a really big way. And we can get fooled, we can get conned, you know, etc. Okay, now when it comes to Scientology, yeah, you know, statistically speaking, most people who come into Scientology are going to probably be empathic in nature. And they want help, and they want to help other people. And L. Ron Hubbard provided this entire, you know, huge system that appears on the surface to be integrated and complete and, and, and useful and workable. And Hubbard's claims on it is not that it's a perfect system, it's a workable system. He said it works, you know, one of the few things in man's history that does. <laughs> and uh, as much as I was railing against the justice system earlier, I'll say it works a thousand times better than Scientology does. So, you know, Hubbard's fluff being what it is, people come in and they buy into it, right? Um, I don't know, I've never really done really serious thought or statistical work on this as far as like, well, how many people are coming into Scientology who are trying to make the world a better place versus how many people are coming in for purely selfish reasons versus how many people are coming in who are total sociopaths, right? Um, I don't even know if I have the data available to do such an analysis. I just have my own, you know, experience. 
and, and anecdotes, right, which I can pass on to you guys. Um, but in this particular case, I don't know that I can speak a whole lot more to this except to say that, yeah, there's all kinds of people who come into Scientology or other destructive self-help type cults who have issues, who have all kinds of problems. And yes, there are people who come into these groups who are mentally ill or who are actually even uh, insane at some level. And they get along in life well enough, they're functioning enough that they can come in, pay some money, read some books, and do some services. But, you know, there's a men off. And I knew people in Scientology like that, and they are interesting people. So, uh, and Scientology, of course, is only making them worse, you know, which was something I didn't factor in during the whole time that I was in, so I never, never really thought about it that way, you know, but now that I can see back, I can see, man, there were some people who came in and we made them worse, and that sucks, you know. Uh, but I couldn't really speak to whether um, Scientology has more appeal or less appeal to such people, except to say that I think the percentages in Scientology are the same kind of percentages you see in society in general. I don't know that it appeals to, to uh, people with mental deficiencies or illnesses or insane people any more than it does to regular people. So, you know, that's my take on that. I hope it's helpful and thank you very much for asking that question. And, and uh, again, I wish you the best of luck in your life beyond uh, the narcissistic situation you were in. Okay, we have come to the end of show number 250. I, I hope those were some big, good answers for you to some big, good questions. Thank you very much for coming around and listening to me chatter on like this. Again, if you find my content interesting, informative, and entertaining, please consider joining me on Patreon. That all being said, I'll see you guys next week. Bye-bye.